Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 10 to 14, which you will find in the Old Testament section of our Pew Bibles on page 751. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Prepare our heart, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, Amen. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Thus says the Lord, Only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then, when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To God be the glory for the reading of Holy Scripture. You know, earlier this week, someone asked me the question if I can remember the first message that I preached from, from this spot. And I actually told them that I did. My, my first message that I preached in this church was on October 30th of 2009. And it was from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and I had titled that message, Strength for the Weak. Well, this morning, by the grace of God and for the glory of God, my last message with you comes from the text that, that was just read. And I want you this morning to think with me about a theme that is near and dear to my heart, and that is the habit and the power of prayer. And I have found from experience, and you've done the same, that often our greatest motivation to pray comes not during seasons of ease or success, but during seasons of adversity and suffering and trials. Can you say amen to that? When life is smooth, when life is unobstructed, when life moves up and to the right like the way the stock market should be behaving, the impulse to pray, I don't know why it is, but the impulse to pray, it dies because we feel self-sufficient. We feel accomplished. And it's in that moment that we become careless and complacent. And as I was preparing for this morning and reading and rereading the chapter of, of chapter 29, the call to prayer, just in this section alone, is heard at least two very distinct times. 
The first call comes in Jeremiah 29 and verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And there it is, pray to the Lord on its behalf. The second call is also in our reading from Jeremiah 29 and verse 12, where the Lord says, when you call upon me and you come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search me, search for me with all your heart, you will find me. I will let you, and and this is just an amazing thought, where God says, I will let you find me. And I want you to note here in the text, it's, it's hard to pick it up just from the few verses we read, we read, but the call to prayer didn't come from the temple in Jerusalem. The call to prayer didn't come from a, re- a retreat center on some lush Judean mountain. This call to prayer is coming from the pleading, yearning, merciful heart of God to a group of people who have lost their spiritual North Star. And that happens to all of us. We wander, we drift, we lose our way. And God in his mercy will call us back and say, come and seek me, come and pray to me. And so the big if, the big if is that the people would humble themselves and pray and seek God, that God would restore them from their 70 years of exile in Babylon. One of the questions I asked myself as I read the text, because I was a little confused, who sent them into exile? depending on which verse you're reading, because Jeremiah 29 and verse 1 seems to suggest that Nebuchadnezzar was the one who was responsible and who carried the people into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. But then you read a little bit further into the text and the letter, it was a letter that Jeremiah in Babylon sent to the exiles in Babylon. Jeremiah in Jerusalem sent to the exiles in Babylon because he heard that they were listening to these false prophets who were telling them, guys, Don't worry about it. In a few weeks, in a few months, you're going to be back home in your land. It's all good. It's peace. No destruction. And Jeremiah didn't want to give these people false hopes. And he said, these people who are speaking to you, God didn't send them. Don't listen to a word they're saying. And this is what he wrote in the letter. God says to you, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from from all the nations and all the places, watch this now, where I have driven you. So who put them in exile? Was it Nebuchadnezzar? Was it God? I think the answer, of course, is both. I know for some of us today who are culturally sort of wired, as opposed to being kingdom-wired, for some of us today, this depiction, Jeremiah's depiction of God as one who judges people, as one who sends people into exile, by today's pluralistic religious standards, Jeremiah's message is considered out of step. That's old school. Our culture has no appetite for this kind of God. We're more interested in a God who never judges. We're more interested in a God who is tolerant and who is loving. And we forget the holiness of God and we forget the sovereignty of God. And we reject what Jeremiah is saying. But I want us to remember that we're not the first who would try to put God in a box. God did judge his people in God's righteousness and justice. And when you read the text, the conditions 
on the ground were hellish. The temple in Jerusalem was obliterated. Men, women, children, the elderly lost their lives. The best and the brightest of Judah were forcibly, forcibly removed to a foreign land. They were forced to eat non-kosher food. They were forced to worship pagan gods. They were forced to embrace the values of that pagan culture. And I want you sometime to go back and read Psalm 137, and you can get an almost firsthand account of their pain. And listen, you can't blame these exiles for wallowing in the quicksands of pessimism and despair. You can't blame them when you hear them saying to God, why have you done this to us? How can you call yourself a loving God and allow your people to suffer and go through such loss? Didn't you tell us that our ancestors, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, that because of their faithfulness and because of their love for you that we would be blessed? But where are the blessings? And the question is, what was God's response? And the Lord says, and I want you to hear this, when Babylon's 70 years are completed, will I visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, if you're a young adult hearing those words, you're in Babylon, you're a 20-something, you're in your 40s, you're middle-aged, what that message is saying to you, 70 years from now, you do the math, you say, well, that doesn't include me. I don't know if I'm even going to be alive 70 years from now. Really, this promise is for my grandchildren. God, this is not what I'm asking you. What are you going to do with me? And so the truth is there's nothing fuzzy or warm about this promise. But God is saying that the conditions are actually going to get worse before they get better. And the question is, if you then had to be in that situation, how do you embrace a promise scheduled for 70 years into the future? How do you trust the promise to go back home when you're not even sure if you're going to see home again? And that's the kind of thing mulling in their minds. And God responds to them in verse 11, for surely, Jeremiah 29 verse 11, for surely I and I included a little bit more there because in the Hebrew, it's an emphatic I. For surely I, even I, know the plans I have for you. Plans for your welfare. Not to harm you, but to give you a hope in the future. And if you are a churchy kind of person like me, you've heard this verse, you've seen this verse on teacups, You've seen it on Instagram, you've seen it on t-shirts, you've seen it all over the place. This is, like, this is like one of those verses that churchy people love. It's a great verse, but it's a misunderstood promise. Because you've got to take note of its context. Yes, this is a word of hope. It's a wonderful promise, but it's a promise to people who just heard that it's going to take 70 years before things start looking up again. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And so if God's plans are for the future, if God's plans are for the future, what that means is we've got to watch how we live in the present. And some of us can't deal with waiting and we just complain. 
And one of the dangers of grumbling about what God is doing, brothers and sisters, is because whatever it is, it means that God is not finished yet. A plan is something that will not be completed until some time in the future. But once it's completed, then it's history. And this is why we have to see ourselves, we've got to put ourselves in Babylon. We've got to see ourselves as people in exile. We've got to see ourselves as people on a journey. And God's not going to give us the whole picture. And so we, like the people, the exiles, we must always live by faith. A believer is someone who trusts the promises of God for the future and acts upon them in the present. In other words, believers act on God's promises before they're fulfilled. Faith, Hebrews 11 and verse 1 says, is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And so if we're going to survive, if we're going to make it, if we're going to thrive in exile, it means then we must learn to not look at just what we see, but like Abraham, see the invisible, looking for that city whose builder and maker in God, the Jewish exiles in Babylon, they had to live by faith. And Jeremiah wants us and those exiles to know, here's the thing, God's plans are purposeful. And let me tell you why I say that. Because you see, I really believe that when God brings adversity into our lives, and I, and I will say that God does bring adversity into our lives, and I know that's hard to imagine. But when those adversities come into our lives, God's plan is to use those adversities to bring us into an intimate, closer relationship. God wants us to walk in communion with him. And so as a sign of your trust in my promises, I think this is what Almighty God is saying. This is what I want you to do while in exile. Yes, guys, listen, listen. Don't listen to the false prophets now. It's going to take a while. It's going to take 70 years. But while you are waiting, notice what God says to the exiles. I want you to build houses and live in them. Get rid of those tents now. Don't listen to those prophets. You're not going home tomorrow. Dig a foundation. Make some bricks build a house, plant a garden, because you got to eat. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. And then the final thing he says to them is, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You know, when I read this, this, this promise, this Old Testament promise, reminds me of what we were reading during Lent. Some of you will remember we started Lent in the Sermon on the Mount, where at the very end of chapter 5, Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, who does that? That's not how we're wired as Americans. You hit me, I'm going to hit you harder. You insult me, watch out, I'm coming after you. And here God is telling these Jewish exiles, yes, the people who killed your grandparents, the people who destroyed your temple, I want you to pray for them. 
pray for them. Seek the welfare of the people who took away your welfare. Love your enemies. Dr. Christopher Wright, who is a friend of this congregation, who has preached here many times, in his commentary on Jeremiah, he, he says that this responsibility will turn the mourners into missionaries. Isn't that good? They should seek the shalom of their neighbors in Babylon, care for their welfare, be agents of constructive peace and well-being in the communities in which they settle. And friends, this is a lesson for us right here in Evanston in First Pres, because when a community, when a family, when a church is going through harsh times, the temptation is we turn inward. It's survival mode, baby. It's self-preservation. And God is saying to them, God is saying to us, don't, don't turn inward, turn outward. Don't just seek your own good. Don't just seek your blessing. Seek the good of others around you and you will be blessed. I was sitting with a man in my office this week and he was telling me all the difficulties that he's having. And he said, Pastor Ray, I woke up one morning and I started thinking to myself, maybe what God is telling me to do is that I need to now, yes, I know I have my problems, he said, but I need to now start helping other people. And I looked at him and I said, you know what, you're right. Sometimes it's when you are blessing other people that the blessings start to come. Don't be a, don't be a mourner, Dr. Christopher Wright says, be a missionary. And I believe this is why prayer becomes so essential. Because you see, inwardly focused, deficit-minded people, discouraged people, hardly ever pray. And if and when they do pray, they're praying for themselves. And here the Lord is instructing us and instructing them that when you pray, I want you to call upon me. I want you to come to me. And I will hear you. When you search me, you'll find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I'll let you find me. And I will restore your fortunes. And I will gather you from the nations and all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And friends, this lesson is so easy to apply, but it's hard to do. We don't need to wait to call on God. God is available to us right now. Whenever we call, God will listen. Whenever we pray, God will answer. Whoever seeks me will find me. Many of you are friends with our brother Dan McNerney and you are, may have even subscribed to his newsletter, which I did. Dan McNerney is a, one of our mission partners and he writes a monthly newsletter and I read his April newsletter and it was about his recent trip to Egypt where he and several American Christian leaders went over to Egypt and I want to read a few snippets from his newsletter. Listen to what he wrote. He said, the non-Western world knows more about prayer than we do in the Western world. And he said, last week I returned from taking a large group of church leaders to Egypt where once again, where once again, he said, the Egyptians taught us how to pray. They demonstrated how to sit at the feet of Jesus, stop talking, stop conferring, stop planning, stop discussing, and just pray which is not a natural inclination for many Americans today. And then he raises this provocative thought. Christianity without prayer, he says, is not Christianity at all. Yet, 
How often do we forget to pray? Can we be Christians and not pray that much? What would Jesus say? Dan McNerney says, remember when Jesus rebuked his friend Martha for running around and spending too much time preparing a meal for guests rather than sitting at his feet like his sister Mary, like her sister Mary, who was listening reverently to his teaching. It's crunch time, first prayers. We all want to know God's plan for our life. We all want to know what God is up to in our life, but how are we going to know those plans if we don't seek him? The most important thing is not the strategy. And Americans are good at strategy, and we're good at mapping out plans. But the most important thing is not the strategy or the plan. That's not the goal. The goal is God. What is the goal, first prayers? Oh, I heard it over here. My ears, I heard nothing over here. What is the goal, first prayers? I heard it down here, but I didn't hear it up there. What is the goal, first prayers? The most valuable thing in all the world. That's the goal. It's not the plan. It's God. And God knows the plan. And so we run by faith into his presence and we listen for his plan. And that's what God is saying to us today. I don't know if you can hear him. He's inviting us to seek him through prayer so we can discover what he has in store for us through the rest of April and May and June, through the rest of 2023. God, what are you up to? Let's have a conversation. Some of you are freaked out. You like to see the finish line. You like to see the blueprints. And just because you can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We're talking about God now, right? The unseen God who is with us during this season of change and transition. So sisters and brothers, do not, first friends, don't slacken your stride. I'm glad to see so many of you here today. And I know you didn't come for me, right? You, you came for, who, did you, who are you here for? Yeah. Hallelujah. So next Sunday, where are you going to be next Sunday? Pastor Amanda, when you're preaching next Sunday, well, she might be with the kids right now, or whoever's preaching next Sunday, that you're going to be here. Carol said, not me. <laughs> don't slacken your stride, First Pres. Don't sit down. Don't, don't lie down. Don't embrace a life of spiritual laziness toward the challenges of the present while you sit back and say how wonderful it was in 1994 here at First Press. Don't, don't do that. Don't swelter in the heat of your present situation until you wilt into hopelessness. Don't throw your hands up and walk away because things are hard. God says, is there anything that is too wonderful for me to do? First Press, it's prayer time. Because here's what prayer does. It brings us to God's best. Not just what makes sense to us. Prayer humbles us to our need for God. Prayer, prayer glorifies God. Ben Patterson, in his book, Deepening Your Conversation with God, he asks the question, or rather it's a statement, 
and it's a scary one. He says, churches can run without prayer. And it's good to see my brother, Reverend Ken Hockenberry, here with us this morning. And he will agree with me. Churches can run without prayer. Denominations can run without prayer. Ben Patterson says, the question is, is what they're doing worth doing then if they can do it without prayer? Come on now. And so, sisters and brothers, on this, my last Sunday, I want you to know I love you. I've always loved you. I will always love you. I, I came here in love, and I'm leaving in love. I'm not embittered. I'm not diminished. I'm not weakened. In fact, all the difficulties and the adversities that we've gone through have been massive lessons, and God has used them to make me better and not bitter. I love you, I bless you, I commend you to the grace of God because it's only the grace of God. What God wants to do in us, no session, no organizational factor in this church can bring it to pass. It's what God has chosen and will do. So I pray that by the grace of God, God will begin to produce in you everything that is pleasing and that conforms to his will, that we will be a listening church. And that is my prayer for you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the people of God say, Amen.